The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38 and is read by Terry Griffiths. So we're thinking carefully about this really familiar passage this morning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Please take a seat. Well, we worship an almighty and all-powerful God, as we've heard already this morning. Is there anything God cannot do? Jeremiah said, Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power an outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I won't ask you to put your hand up if you believe there is nothing that God cannot do because it's a little bit cringy um, and also I'll just be trying to catch you out because um, when I say is there anything he cannot do of course there is things he cannot do um, he cannot make a triangle two-sided um, some things are just illogical um, he cannot lie he cannot sin he cannot do anything that goes against his character but he can do anything that he wants to do. And he can do things that we think are humanly impossible. It's now, uh, I think, nearly 50 years since um, uh, the first uh, episode of Mission 
Impossible appeared on the TV screens. I think there's a picture coming up of the original cast. Some of you will be old enough to, uh, to remember these guys who are just about to appear on the screen. Or not. But, um, are we a bit stuck? Uh, there we are. Do you remember those guys? Um, it's nearly 20 years since the first um, film um, came out with uh, Tom Cruise. I think there's been five films now, Mission Impossible. Much may have changed during that time. Um, may have been many different missions, but some things have stayed the same. The theme music, the uh, familiar words that you can read on the bottom there. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. Of course, they always do accept it, and um, all the missions do turn out to be possible in the end. But our passage this morning, the main character, Mary, is given a mission. It comes to her in quite a strange way, not through a, a tape that self-destructs in five seconds, um, but through an angel. And it appears to be an impossible mission. But she does choose to accept it, because she knows she's not doing that in her own strength, She's not doing it on her own, but she's doing it with the help of God. And as we shall see, nothing is impossible with God. The story, if you just look briefly before um, the passage we're going to be concentrating on, is, uh, is preceded by that of Zechariah and Elizabeth, an older couple who've been praying for the child all their lives. And having given up all hope because they're now too old and it's now humanly impossible, God answers their prayer. And not only does he answer it with any, any old son, he answers it um, with a son who's to be the prophet, John the Baptist, the one who points to Jesus himself. Let's come back to our story that starts in verse 26, because here, although Mary has a key role, um, it's secondary to the other characters in this story. The main character is not even the angel Gabriel. The main character is God himself. And what we see in this passage, as you see on the screen, that God is the great orchestrator. He is the one who takes the initiative in this whole story. He is the one, it says there, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. It's not the angel Gabriel decided to, to visit Nazareth or happened to be uh, passing uh, by one day. But God sent Gabriel, one of two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. He was sent by God, one of God's messengers. And what he was going to say was a message from God himself. And he was sent according to God's plan. At the time he decided, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, at the place he decided, an insignificant small town in Galilee, and involving the people that he had chosen, an unknown uh, virgin named Mary, and an unknown man that she was going to marry called Joseph. God is the one who's the orchestrator of everything that's about to take place. The other thing it says here is that God um, uh, was sent to a virgin whose name was Mary. And the significance comes of this uh, comes later in verse 34, if you look ahead, when having been told what is going to happen, that she will be pregnant with the Son of God, she very innocently asks, well, how will this be, 
since I'm a virgin. She's not naive. She knows what it it takes for a baby to be conceived and, and knows that it's humanly impossible. So the angel explains to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It is humanly impossible, but not with God. That is something I think that many people find difficult to grasp and will try and find ways to, to explain away the, the virgin birth. But to reject the virgin birth is not only to, to um, reject the accuracy and the authority of Scripture, it's actually to deny that Jesus is God. And when you do that, you deny the essence of Christianity. God shows his power that nothing is impossible with him. But if we look at the words that are used to describe Joseph, we're given another clue here as to something even more important than God's power that is at work here. And namely that God is faithful to his promises. Look how Joseph is described here. He's a descendant of David. A descendant of David. Well, so what you might ask. Um, some of you here may be descended from famous people. Um, who knows? Some of you may even be descended from royalty. Um, there's a bit of a fascination, isn't there, with tracing one's uh, family tree back as far as we can, can go and seeing what there is in the past. But this is much more than just a throwaway line. This is actually the fulfillment of a promise, a promise made hundreds of years earlier. Come with me, if you'd like, to, um, to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've got one of the church Bibles, um, you'll find that on page 310. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. This is a a promise that God makes to to King David. This is what he says. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, as is common with Old Testament prophecy, it's at two levels here. There is the immediate and the future. The immediate is that David's offspring will build God's house. He's saying to David, it will be your son Solomon, who will be the one who will build my temple But from your offspring will be the one whose throne and kingdom shall last forever. Who can that be? Well, if you turn back to uh, to Luke chapter 1, look at the words used here to describe this uh, new child in verse 32. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The people of Israel have been waiting hundreds of years and now the arrival of the promised king is imminent God is faithful 
to his promises. The title of this sermon is Nothing is Impossible with God, which comes from verse 37 uh, from chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, but that comes from the old NIV translation. And that comes at the end of a few verses where the angel has explained to Mary how she'll become pregnant, um, how even Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age, and finishes with those words in the old translation, for nothing is impossible with God, words that we're probably always very familiar with if we've known that version. And that is easy to understand as God is all-powerful. He will make it happen, which of course is true. I think this translation, which is probably more close to the original, gives a slightly different um, nuance here. For no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. It conveys the fact that if God has said this is going to happen, that Mary will have a baby by the Holy Spirit, then you can trust him because he is powerful and nothing is impossible with him. But it also looks back to the fact that what is happening now was promised by God hundreds of years earlier in the promise that he made to David. So you can trust God because he keeps his promises. No word from God will ever fail. God is faithful in his promises, and that should give us a huge encouragement. Well, if this is not incredible enough already, but uh, we also learn something else of God in this passage, and that is his grace. Why, of all the women God could choose um, to be the mother of Mary, does he choose Mary? Does he to be the mother of Jesus? Does he choose Mary? Mary was no one special. She was um, just one of uh, thousands of uh, young virgins uh, who would have been around at the time. She came from this insignificant little town called Nazareth, probably smaller um, in those days than Long Crendon. And yet God chose to favour her. The angel went to her and said, as we see highlighted here, greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, it's not surprising that when he gives that greeting to Mary, she's a little worried, she's troubled, it says here. And we're told she wondered what kind of greeting that might be. What do you mean by that? What are you after here? What are you trying to say? And so the angel calms her down. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favour with God. That same expression again. You are highly favoured. You've found favour with God. And for us, it may sound a little bit like, well, you're in God's good books, Mary. You've done a good job. Maybe you've um, done something to impress him. You've worked hard at school. Um, you've helped out at home. You've uh, looked after your neighbours. God is impressed with you. But for the God of the universe to find favour with someone, it's not down to anything that we have done. It's that he's chosen to bestow his grace on her. In the same way that Noah, in the Old Testament story, didn't deserve to be chosen to survive God's anger in the flood. Israel didn't deserve to be chosen as God's special nation. You or I, if we're Christians here, don't deserve to be chosen to be forgiven by God. Mary found favour with God. God demonstrated his grace towards her. So what was this special blessing that she would receive, though? Let's come on to the second important character in this drama, because he's only a baby, and he's not born yet, but Jesus is the baby who will be the eternal king. 
The baby that Mary is going to give birth to is not just any child. In just a few words, we're given some incredible information about who this child will be. Have a look at verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of, he'll be the, son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Let's just have a look at those descriptions of Jesus. The first one, you are to call him Jesus. You are to call him Jesus. This is not just God going through the, uh, the Collins book of children's names and uh, coming up with one that he likes the sound of, um, one which doesn't have too many negative connotations. You always have to be careful about that, don't you? Um, don't know whether you followed the uh, Nutella um, promotion recently. You're allowed to have your name on a jar of Nutella. That's great news, isn't it? Um, Troubles have got into a few problems with an American um, couple because they've refused to put their daughter's name on a jar of Nutella. Um, apparently, they named their daughter Isis. Um, a bit unfortunate, isn't it? The name Jesus, though, is not a random choice of a name. The name Jesus has meaning. In Hebrew, it was Yeshua or Joshua, which means the Lord saves. In Matthew's Gospel, we are told an angel came to, to Joseph and uh, told him what was going to happen. And uh, this is what the angel said to, to Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This baby will be a saviour. But also, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Zechariah was told that his son would be um, great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus would simply be great because he is the Lord. When we speak of greatness today, it's often, isn't it, in the sense of celebrities, people who have achieved status um, in the areas maybe of uh, sport or music, maybe politics, um, various different areas of our lives. And I wonder if you've ever aspired to greatness or you've ever aspired to greatness for your children. But of course, human greatness fades, doesn't it? A tiny fraction of people are remembered for their greatness. They're in the headlines for a short while and then they fade away. They may be the lead singer of a band like Spandau Ballet, if you remember the 80s. But they grow old, they move to Cheersley, as I think he has done and um, in desperation, go on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Jesus' greatness would spread throughout the world and throughout time. It would last forever. Why? Because he's the son of the Most High. He's God. He is of the same nature as God. And the difference between Jesus the Son, God the Father, is that Jesus the Son took on human flesh he entered our world. That is the great Christmas story, isn't it? That God should stoop so low and enter the world of those that he had created. Jesus will always be man and God. But thirdly, his kingdom, it says, it will never end. We mentioned earlier that he will be given the throne of, his, uh, uh, of David, his father, his human ancestor. And thereby he will fulfill the promise of God. We said his reign 
will continue forever. But how will that happen? His kingdom will never end. Is it like the the, uh, United Kingdom, um, ruled over by our Queen? Some of you may think that um, she has ruled forever. No, Jesus' kingdom consists of those who have willingly subjected themselves to his reign, who enjoy having their interests served by a perfect servant king. All Christians are part of his kingdom. And whilst it's not a a geographical kingdom now, there will be a time when he comes again. He takes all of his people to be with him in a place um, where there will be only those who have accepted him as their king. Jesus is the baby who will be the eternal king. But finally, let's let's, let's have a look at the final character, Mary herself. What is the role that she plays here? Well, Mary is the humble servant who accepts her part in God's plan. What does this passage tell us about her? Well, the first thing it highlights um, is that she's a virgin. How significant is that? Well, obviously she had to be to demonstrate that the conception of Jesus in the womb of a woman was not by a man. She conceived a child who is of God. It also shows that although she wasn't sinless, as some may think, because all humans are born sinful, she was sexually pure. She hadn't slept with a fiancé or or any other man. Um, And sexual purity is something that is important to God. Of course, not every woman in the line of Jesus uh, uh, was so pure. There was um, Bathsheba, the the adulteress, Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law, Rahab, the prostitute. Sexual promiscuity, like any sin, can be forgiven by God. But there is a lesson uh, to be learned here. God chose a virgin to be the recipient of his most precious gift, and virginity before marriage, however countercultural it may be in this day and age, is important because it emphasizes the gift of sex to be enjoyed within a loving, committed relationship, which is marriage. But more remarkable here is Mary's response to the angel's news. When the angel first appears to Mary, tells her that she is highly favored, the Lord is with her, her initial response is to be greatly troubled, to be perplexed. The the news that the angel is giving Mary is quite staggering, isn't it, as we've already seen. And I wonder how much of what the angel said to her would really have, have registered with her. It was the obvious question, well, how can this happen? It's just not humanly possible. But there would have been a whole load of other questions that have been going through her mind as she heard this news. How, what would you have thought at that time? How would you have responded to this amazing news? Would you have grasped the immensity of what you've been chosen to do? Or would you be asking yourself, well, what about Joseph? What's he going to think? How's he really going to believe me when I I say to him I'm pregnant, but it's not by another man? What will others say? They They will accuse me of adultery. I will be a social outcast. The rest of my life will be ruined. I'm not even ready to have children yet. I haven't brought up a normal child, let alone the son of God. How am I going to do it? By Zechariah before her, she could have said, well, how can I be sure of this? How do I know you're telling the truth? Prove it to me. But what she does say is this. She says in verse 38, I 
and the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled, or may it be to me as you have said. I don't really appreciate the enormity of what you're saying to me. I can't get my head around how I could possibly become pregnant as a virgin. I don't know how my fiancé will treat me, let alone others. I don't know how I will live up to this responsibility. And yet I do believe that nothing is impossible with God. I do believe that you are in control of what will happen and therefore I willingly submit myself to your plans for me. I will accept this mission. And as Elizabeth says in a few verses later in verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill her, his promises to her. Mary was specially chosen to be the mother of God's son. It doesn't mean, of course, that she should be worshipped. After all, later on, when Jesus began his, his ministry as a, as a man, and he was told that his mother and brothers were looking for him, what did he say? He said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Yes, Mary has been given a very special role to fulfill. She has incredible faith. But at the end of the day, she's just a member of God's family like each one of us if we've accepted Jesus. It's a faith that accepts that we won't understand and we don't need to because if we did, we would be God, wouldn't we? But it's a humble acceptance that God will do what is best. Mary had a unique role to play, but this story has relevance for each one of us today. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, no word from God will ever fail. God promised he would send a Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin who would grow up to be a man who would one day be mocked and killed who would give his life so that we can be forgiven. And in Jesus, his plan was accomplished. And so the question for us is, do we trust that in Jesus we are forgiven? Because as we trust in that promise, as we see that that has been fulfilled, we can trust in all the other promises that God has made to us that are yet to be fulfilled. Because God still promises many things, doesn't he? He promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. That is a promise that we can grab hold of and say, I do trust in that as well. He promises he will guide us and protect us. We can have faith that he will keep that promise. He has promised that he will complete the work that he has begun in us. Another great promise to, to accept and enjoy. And he promises that Jesus will come again. Do you believe in these promises? Do you believe that uh, no word from God will, will ever fail? Mary didn't say to God, well, I'll only accept this mission if you tell me exactly what my life is going to look like in the future. I need to see this panning out. No, she accepted it. She didn't know the grief that she would one day experience as she looked up at the cross and saw her son crucified. But she said, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Are we able to say the same thing to Jesus? Instead of worrying what the future holds, are we able to say, let me get on and serve you? Let me do whatever you want me 
to do. Let me simply trust and obey you on your terms, not my terms. Whatever pain that may cause me in the process, and even though I don't know where that might take me in the future, because you are the true king, you are the son of the most high, you will reign forever. Let's have a moment of quiet just to reflect on these, uh, these amazing verses, to reflect on who Jesus is. Maybe we need to ask for faith or greater faith to, to trust in those promises, to trust that no word from God will ever fail, to trust that nothing is impossible with God. And let's commit ourselves to him as his servant and trust in his plans for our lives.